Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve, these folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is cult filmmaker Jackie Kong, best known for her outrageous horror comedy Blood Diner, the charming story of two homicidal brothers who dig up their uncle's corpse and follow the instructions from his undead brain to kill a large number of people so that they can use the body parts to resurrect the ancient Lumerian goddess Sheetar. The film, which came out in 1987, is now well regarded as an underground cult movie, which has seen quite a few successful revival screenings in the past few years. Kong made her first film in her early 20s together with her then-husband Bill Oskell. A monster movie called The Being, which stars Martin Landau, Jose Ferrer and Oskell himself, shot in 1980, released in 1983. She also made two comedies, both in the vein of the Police Academy movies, Night Patrol, starring the unknown comic Murray Langston and Linda Blair, and The Underachiever, starring Edward Albert and Barbara Carrera. And then, after four films, she pulled a J.D. Salinger. She stopped making movies and mostly disappeared from the public eye. In recent years, she's launched a website where she addressed rumors about herself. She attended many screenings of her films. She recorded audio commentaries for re-releases of her movies. And she's currently working on a new project. In our interview, Jackie talks about the making of Blood Diner, her aesthetic and her characters, and she discusses her particular twisted brand of Americana. If you enjoy my conversation with Jackie Kong, make sure to check out our other interviews at TalkingPicturesPodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and the podcast platform of your choice. So here's Talking Pictures with Jackie Kong. Do you enjoy shocking people? Do you, do you enjoy provoking them? Since I was a child. <laughs> I, that's my trait. I loved, I loved getting a reaction. Shocking people is part of it, obviously. But um, getting a reaction, I, I, no one is going to sit in any of my films passively. Either you're going to laugh, or you're going to scream, or you're going to hate it, or you're going to love it. So uh, to me, a failure as a filmmaker would be someone that sits in your perfectly good-looking film with no feeling whatsoever um, and no um, emotion whatsoever. I, to me, this, that would be a failure as a filmmaker. Um, and I see lots of that happening a lot. Beautiful pictures, you know, uh, scripts that have been done over and over and over again, no, no surprises. It looks good, sounds good, but... And people walk out saying, oh, they don't remember it because it would left no impression. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that when you watch my films and people remember them decades later, including Quentin Tarantino, scene by scene. He can do every scene, for example, from Night Patrol. And he, did, he acted out his favorite scene for me when I met him the first time. He goes, what's your favorite, you know, what's your favorite, he's out, he's how he talks, what's your favorite Uh, scene in, in about that time he had just done uh, Reservoir Dogs and he was a big fan because he worked at a video store and I apparently watched my films over and over and over again while he's the manager of the video store. So um, the idea, he understood that, you know, my films got a reaction and he, and he, um, that's what he does. He, he does the same kind of thing, shock, shock value. Um, I think, uh, you know, being a female Film director, people are somewhat surprised by that. But if I were a man, I don't think people would be surprised by that at all. 
um, the what the reactions that I get, the the the, the things that I use to get those reactions. Um, but being a, a, a female, especially when I was directing, they considered my sensibility to be completely confounding. Mm. Um, it was um, way before its time as far as Blood Diner. Uh, I purposely cast opposite type for the killers. They were charming and good looking. In the script, they were considered ghoulish and ugly, and you could see them coming a mile away. You know, uh, serial killers that were nice and charming and guys you wanted to date were against all sensibility at the time. So when we went to get the rating at the MPAA for the uh, film to release it theatrically, um, they turned off the film and said that this film has no morally redeeming values whatsoever. And interestingly enough, <laughs> and they wouldn't. They said if we had to rate it, they actually turned it off. And he was so upset. Uh, he said if I had to rate this film, you would get like, you know, three three X's. It wouldn't be just one X. And I, or, and, and they said that you know, uh, for you to get anything other, you'd have to make major cuts. And I said, but what would I cut the whole film? I mean, there would be no. There would be what one minute of credits, perhaps, but <laughs> but no film. And, and, I said, uh, you know, this is the film. I, I turned to Vestron and I said, let's take it out unrated. Because if it goes out unrated, then I don't have to make any cuts. If people don't get it, they don't get it. But it, it turned out that certain places really got the film. Like we were opened in San Francisco and then we moved from a grind house to an art house. Literally that film transformed from, mm. it, it, because it transcends the genre, it moved from your typical grind house um, um, theater, you know, for exploitation films to the Castro, which was the art house in San Francisco. And, um, and in fact, when I, when it, it played worldwide because the film got such a reaction, it was picked up everywhere, dubbed in five languages or more, I think seven languages, um, Spanish, Italian, German, um, French, uh, Chinese, you know, it was like, it, it, it got picked up everywhere theatrically and it got a great response everywhere but the U.S. initially and the U.S. caught up with it about 30 years later mm. when I did my insanity tour um, when was it? I started my insanity tour of the film in 2016 and ran through the pandemic almost because what happened is it started picking up steam we were selling out theaters all over the U.S. starting in Austin then going to New York and um then Kansas City, Miami, uh, Vancouver, Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, L.A. Ended up in L.A. and ended up playing three theaters in L.A., the Chinese Theater, and sold that out, and then played um, the New Art Theater, which is very prestigious, which is an art house. I'll give you the lineup. It was Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, David Lynch, Sam Raimi, and Blood Diner. And, that lineup. and I'll send you that, uh, that lineup. And... And it was really, and someone said, well, they're in good company to me because <laughs> I'm in good company. But because the film as, a, as, a, as an art piece is well-crafted, if you watch that film, especially the last 10 minutes of the film, I tell people, if you're not into horror, if you're not into being shocked, at least sit in for the last, so the last 10 minutes because that is a well-crafted 10 minutes of, of a finale. And it was literally one page in the script, and I... And I shot four days in that club with a hundred extras and effects and music. And I shot every day, 90 setups a day. So 360 shots make up that last 10 minutes wow. of the, 
And the editor didn't know how to cut it because none of that was scripted. I wrote it out in rehearsal. And um, and then the editor looked at me and said, I have no idea. So I actually edited the last 10 minutes, that whole finale from the time mm-hmm. they entered the club until the end. Um, I had to literally do it cut by cut. Mm-hmm. And when I did it, I said, now it's done. Because you have to knit chaos very carefully. Chaos is a, he he tried and he said, it's just a mess. And, and, and it, I said, it creates no feeling. I said, I said, chaos, like a war scene, is very carefully crafted to always leave people hanging. So if you watch the finale, mm-hmm. you'll see everyone is hanging. You never, I never finish what happens to everybody. I, I have five different things going on. More than that, I've got the bands, the ritual, the two guys, the two cops, all of the zombies, the, the people that turn into zombies in three stages. First they turn green and then they turn into zombies and then they start eating each other and then they kill each other. It's like a massacre scene. So, <laughs> so to do that, we had to, you know, to do that in four days, 90 setups a day, single camera it was a feat. I mean, it was, um, I, I, I had scripted A through Z zombie attacks that were not in the script that I wanted to, it's like a war scene when you have like attack, 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 so that that would create this this backdrop for this finale that was not, you know, that, that had to be um, what they entered to create this chaos that, but like I said, chaos is extremely controlled. Mm-hmm. To, create the, to create the sensation of chaos, one has to know how to craft it in a way that's very controlled. So again, you're leaving everyone hanging. So if you watch it again, you, you'll see from the moment they enter the club, no, but nothing is ever finished. Mm-hmm. And that, that way we come back to it. So everyone is like a cliffhanger over and over and over and over again um, for 10 minutes. Yeah, I noticed with the sequence, um, in, in a way it's the same principle that you used in The Underachievers um, with the cross-cutting between the individual storylines. It's just that in, in Blood Diner you have um, everything happening in one location and in The Underachievers you have you know, the, the the stage play and you have the exam people are taking and you have the, the story with um, the mafia guy. Uh, so it sort of comes to a climax. It sort of gathers momentum. For the big finale. Everything happening at once in a way. Yes, yes. I, I try to deliver a good ending because I find that most comedies or especially comedies start to wane during the course of the film. So it starts off great, very funny. And then all of a sudden they have to introduce the plot. And when they introduce the plot, which is tricky in comedy, usually the comedy starts to go down because it becomes heavy with exposition and trying to explain what's going on. And suddenly it's not funny anymore. Um, And then there's no ending. Um, Night Patrol, when we started Night Patrol, there was no ending. I turned, I was, I had to come in and and, um, I told the writers because they were comedy writers to write an ending. They were used to writing jokes, but not a story. So I had asked them to write it while we were shooting because we were shooting weekends only on that film. We had almost no money, zero money. And we were working, everyone was working deferred on weekends from April 15th. I still remember that. I said, whether we have money or not, we're rolling April 15th. So every weekend (laughs) I said, just gather me the camera at 5,000 feet of film and the actors I'll rehearse during the week and we'll just run and grab it all over LA, which is what it was like a hit and run grabbing of all those scenes i would do two locations a night in los angeles um, because i had rehearsed all the actors thoroughly during the week so they were ready just to come in and do it with just pop into the location um so um i was you know that film um is an example of of 
trying to get as much on the on on film in camera as humanly possible by planning everything extremely every shot thoroughly shot by shot and rehearsing the actors that was my trademark one of my other trademarks I even in blood diner people wondered how I shot that in 18 days I shot the film in 18 days because we were completely rehearsed um, I rehearsed with the actors for uh, at, at all of the actors even the zombies for for a month almost a month a little over a month before we started rolling so everybody knew what they were supposed to do, and I knew what I could get from them. And that is why I made that one character uh, Stan's friend into a dummy. Um, because I said, you know, I was looking at the actors, because I, I really watch. I sit and I will redo my shot breakdown after rehearsal. I'll do some rewrites during rehearsal, not during filming. So this is a correction. Someone said, oh, you were writing during filming. I said there was nothing changed from rehearsal to filming because I don't have time. I'm shooting average 50 setups a day during the regular day and then the finale 90 setups a day. I said I had times by my shots because I knew in rehearsal what I already had so I could, get, I could design my shots. Do you see what I'm saying? Very quickly mm -hmm. and in location. So it was very fast. It was pure execution during during filming, no room for change, no improvisation during um, Blood Diner at all. No changes from rehearsal the month before. Um, and um, the writer was not allowed on the set because I didn't want him coming in and trying to say, oh, you're changing my story. Um, because it was, uh, you know, that guy, that writer never even, I never, he never was allowed onto the set. And, and, and the problem I have with that, I did that one time where I let writers come onto the set. And the problem is, is they have their own vision. And I don't need, I don't have time to explain my vision to them. <laughs> that's, my, that's my job to do the way I see the script. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I don't, uh, as a rule, even a night patrol. That one um, of the of the team of writers that was working on it, the only one that was there on the set was uh, the ones that were in the film, mm -hmm. the unknown comic, and. Um, but the other writers, I don't even, I don't even think I ever met them even. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, and still to this day, I've not met the others. So. <laughs> the writers who are listening to this podcast are going to love this. <laughs> they're going to love it because I tell you, they're going to know it's true. And what's so mm. weird is um, is when I, um, they did the, uh, because the films became hits and, and, I, and I got a lot of critical acclaim. What's weird is I, I believe one of the writers said, oh, they were on, they were like writing at night during the filming. And that's just not true. That didn't mm -hmm. happen. Um, there was no writing at night during the film. But I get that people want credit. So I'm not going to, you know, um, discuss it in detail. But I can, I can assure you uh, those writers never made it onto my set. Mm hmm yeah, because uh, it was like uh, it was my version of it. For example, in rehearsal, in the script of Blood Diner, there was the dummy, the one character that was a person. It was a scripted person. Uh -huh. uh, it wasn't a dummy. And during rehearsal, I changed it to a dummy. I said, I, a dummy can act better than this. So <laughs> And so uh, people were auditioning and, and coming in. I said, and I turned to my uh, art department, which I was very close to. I said, make me a dummy. I said, because uh, then they looked at me. The producer looked at me and said, you're crazy because the, the, this is, can't be a dummy because it has lines. 
And I said, yeah, we'll give it the lines. The dummy can do the line. I said, because, <laughs> because what sells loneliness better than no customers, no friends, and then you have to talk to a dummy. And it's one of the best jokes, basically, in the film. It's so absurd, especially when he's being attacked. He's still talking as the still dummy and, and discussing things. Yeah, and that to me, this creates much a much more interesting film. I mean, mm -hmm. but if the writer saw that I turned one of his characters into a dummy, they would be having a fit, you see. Mm -hmm. So I don't have time to, to, especially when I'm filming that fast. I've never had the luxury of, of uh, big budgets or a lot of time or money ever. Always having to be clever with the resources that we have, which were never quite enough. So I'd always have these extensive meetings, even now on in lockdown during this pandemic i'm already i've already done a 25 page shot breakdown with my cinematographer we're talking about 25 single line shots of mm -hmm. the pilot and i haven't even finished the break the um finale yet i stopped because i have my production design team working on the set that i want to build to do the finale in and you cannot design the shots until you understand the set the, the setting mm. So I, I wanted, I said it's going to be a big finale and I want to build this set. So right now, in fact, I was just looking before we started, I'm meeting with them today um, because I've had them redo the, the one big set four times, just to give you an idea. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, And so the film, for the money we had, looks tremendous. And even if you forget the money we had, the films look good because mm -hmm. they're designed. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Nobody walks and just films haphazardly on one of my films. And again, because I've never had the luxury of that, I'm sure that must be fun <laughs> for people just to walk on <laughs> and figure it out on the spot. Um, but I find that it doesn't make for a good film from the way the, the way I direct. You know, uh, the way that I direct everything is laid out and uh, designed mm -hmm. like a. Um, You know, and I always film sitting by the camera. People, you know, it's like the old Hitchcock um, way. I sit seriously on the um, dolly with the cinematographer right behind his head so I can see exactly. I don't, you got to remember, I'm shooting film. I'm not shooting video with a video village 20 feet away because I like mm -hmm. to be near actors. So, so I can give them direction. Sometimes I don't even cut. I'll just talk to them and say, okay, do it again. Do it again. Try this. Try this. And I won't even cut. And there'll be like five takes, so I can just pick one that I that I know I like mm -hmm. um, when I'm rolling. So I won't even cut sometimes. And the only way you can do that is to be right where they can hear you. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Mm -hmm. And I, when I'm by the camera and I'm looking over the that way, I can whisper in the cinematographer's ear, or the operator. Lots of times I work with operators to free up the cinematographer. I can talk to him and I can see the pan. I can see exactly what he's seeing because I'm. I'm right on, right behind him. You see what I'm saying? Or I know Hitchcock used to go under the camera. Mm -hmm. I prefer to be under the camera. I prefer to be right on the same line as the lens um, behind the cinematographer. So I can see even if there's a zoom, I can see how fast it is. If there's a pan, I can see exactly where the, 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 the lens is going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I'm pretty well versed in, you know, cameras and lenses. I even call the lenses. I'll say, I want a 50 millimeter lens right here. Mm -hmm. And, or um, give me a 200 millimeter lens, like on the beginning of um, a night patrol in that park scene. That's a 250 millimeter lens shooting mm -hmm. down the length of Santa Monica 
park, the bluff overlooking Santa Monica Beach. Um, and so I had to have station my assistants down that long walkway and all those people in the background don't know we're filming because we're mm-hmm. way down 250 down the walkway 250 uh you know with a 250 millimeter lens so they don't even see us so mm-hmm. i had to station the um assistants to send in the actors to crisscross <laughs> and 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 then you have an assistant director pull focus as he comes cl- closer to the camera mm-hmm yeah, those are the strategies that you need as a, as an independent filmmaker when you don't have a lot of, of, of money and you don't have a lot of time. And you want it to look good. You want it yeah. to look real. Because the problem is, is I've seen a couple of films lately people send me, and it's, there was a low-budget movie, you've got to take a look at it, and it's a high school, for example. I said, where are all the people? Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't think that they have one, the same five people and there are no other people <laughs> around. And... <laughs> And, and this is a, a strategy. You have to have, I use people like art direction. This is really what I, you know, to me, the people in the scene are as important as the art direction. It's like it creates the, the vibe, the environment. And so you'll see that in all my films, even Blood Diner, there's always, it's always full. The club is full. Mm-hmm. The diner is full. Not only is the diner full, the street outside the diner on the sidewalk is full of people, a line of people trying to get in. If you look at Blood Diner on a big screen, which when we screened it, it was, which is the way you should see it, because it was shot on 35, meant to be seen on a theater screen. In the diner, you will see three layers of action always that we had, that we lit and I directed three layers. So you've got, let's say, Rick and, and the Virgin talking in the foreground, close up. You've got the cheerleaders and the customers in the midground, and then you've got the line of people outside the window. So we had to gel the windows, and you've got Hollywood Boulevard full of traffic and people walking on the other side of the street. There are actually several layers of action going on, so it looks like you're in a city, mm-hmm. it looks like a real place. So people thought that we were really in some diner that existed. No, we created that diner. There was nothing there. Mm-hmm. And that club was the same thing. There was no club. We created the club. So it was a vacant um, speakeasy from the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And I built the set for the, um, the back room of the diner at that, another part of that location. Um, because when you walk through the door in the diner, in that real location where we shot the, the, the dining room scene, there's no back room. You hit a wall. So I had them build a door and then take that door to the next set so that when every time they walk from the from the front diner to the back room we're now on another set completely shot another at another location that's mm-hmm. sort of movie magic but it that's why i have to build sets on the current project that i'm doing because i want that freedom of lighting and mm-hmm. the free movement with the dolly and the camera that you can't get on location mm-hmm. on location you, you end up you know not compromising the lighting and not being able to move the camera because you, you've got to take out a wall. <laughs> <laughs> you need that, third wall, that fourth wall gone so you can be on that side. Otherwise, you've got to use wide-angle lenses that don't look good. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, so, you know, I know now they've got these little digital cameras you can stick up in a corner at the sense of digital signal, but I like to move for the camera. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's... That's just my the way. I, if you watch my films, you'll see the cameras constantly in motion. Mm-hmm. 
I looked at a lot of the scenes in, in especially Blood Diner and, and Night Patrol, um, and I noticed that the camera is always um, sort of it's scoping the, the sort of the layout of the room in a way. Um, and I think that the setups actually are not that complicated, but you have um, just enough of them so that it keeps moving, so that it you know keeps that um, it, it looks interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But I can see the planning behind it because I'm, I mean I know what it means to do an independent film, and you you only have two hours to shoot at one location, or you only have I don't know what you only have the actor for so and so long. Um, and you need to know exactly in advance what you what you're doing. And, and some of the scenes in Night Patrol, for example, you only have one setup or maybe two, um, and then a couple of inserts that allow you to sort of move the story along at a faster pace. So I find that interesting. Yeah, um, Night Patrol was in, uh, it was a, a tough shoot because we shot night, so you have very limited hours before the sun comes up. It's like uh, being vampires. So you've got to, you always are, um, and, and because we are shooting Fast and Furious, um, I was, we were always shooting two locations a night. So you can imagine having to light two locations a night, not just walk in like daylight and shoot, you know, with a few reflector boards. You, you're talking about lighting the bar, the meat market saloon, which was a big room, and to get those reverses, to shoot one direction of them coming in and then light it and turn around and get all the reverses. So I had everything planned always around the lighting. It's really quite interesting. <laughs> well, if, you, if, uh, if you watch that, I shoot out everything totally out of order in order to get all of the shots in that one direction for several scenes. All of the, the cop driving scenes with the car mounts were all shot in one pass. It, it, we're talking about, it's a, it's a cop movie and they're driving a lot. And every, I had them sit on a sofa in rehearsal and jump from Scene seven. Okay, now let's go to scene thirty-two. Now let's go to scene seventy-one. Now let's go to scene one hundred and twenty. And they would be able to jump from one scene to the next while driving because back then we didn't have enough money to tow it. So we had big cameras on the hood of the car, and and Pat Pawson had to drive, which you, you have obstructed views um, down Hollywood Boulevard in some of the really worst parts of L.A. <laughs> <laughs> um, non-stop and doing his lines while driving a vehicle and jumping. I would say I'd be on a truck in front of them saying, okay, now jump. Let's jump to scene 73 or something. And then they'd have to do those lines. And then it would jump to, so, so everything, all of that stuff, you didn't have the luxury. It looks like it's, you know, in real time. But in fact, every driving scene was shot in one night, less than one. And while we were shooting the exterior of the, um, uh, of another location, I said, okay, let's get the car mounts mounted up. We're going to go shooting the street stuff. And um, while they're lighting the exterior of, a, of another spot for um, when they go into that nightclub. So, and then, um, so anyway, you know, that's really the magic of if you plan everything, that you can create this sense of, uh, of, um, of, uh, and I, I feel pretty good about the fact that I'm able to create a sense of the locale. Mm-hmm. Um, people always, apparently a lot of people love to go to the location of Blood Diner. Mm-hmm. It's on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Coanga, one of the busiest intersections in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I was um, filming um, there with my crew in that diner on the corner, and it was summer, and 
we had gel the windows and I had the whole place pre-lit so I could go all over the diner with lights above. So if you watch that, you'll see all the lights are up above and then tweaked for the close-ups. They got 120 degrees. <laughs> it, was, it was like heating up in that little place. And we had no, um, uh, no dressing rooms, no, you know, there was nowhere to get away. You know, we were just filming in this hot, uh, you know, ridiculously hot box with all of those extras. And so, uh, you know, again, full of people. I never had it empty. Same thing with the club. But if you watch closely, these are the same extras. Uh -huh. <laughs> dressed differently in the club, in the restaurant, in the police station. Um, you know, uh, we had a dedicated group of people working on it. But you can uh -huh. feel it. You know, Christian, you can feel it when it's working. Uh -huh. There's a vibe, like a night patrol. Everyone, even though we are doing weekends only, the crew members wanted to throw money into the film because they could feel it working. And I believe that everyone wants to work on a good film. Uh, there are a lot of films that are made and um, they work on stuff that never gets out there. Everyone wants to work on something good. And when filming, you can feel when it's good. You can feel the, the, that it's getting funny. In fact, on Night Patrol, I had to lay out a rule. Nobody can laugh during a take because it was so funny <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't want it ruined. You know, I said, I don't want it ruined by somebody laughing. And I don't want the actors to play to my crew. Uh -huh. I said, because these are comedians, and they'll, they'll go for the laugh. They're, they're trying to make people laugh. But I said, the only thing, person you've got to make laugh is me. <laughs> and I've got to get it on film, because it doesn't matter if, if the crew is laughing or it's not funny. I said, I have to make sure it's, like, really funny. So when we were filming that diner scene, we were shooting at a sort of a landmark in Santa Monica, this old diner called Ray's. I, I put the camera outside the window in order to get the master shot of the two sitting in the booth and the waiter coming up behind them. And then I, I stationed someone to throw the spiders into the scene or the bugs. You know. So um, when we were filming it, I, I had the headset on and and the, and, the, and the cameraman did as well. And I could see him starting to laugh because it's really one of the funniest scenes. I mean, in a master, one master, hilarious. So, um, so, I see him starting, and I'm, 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 and I'm on a long lens. So you know, as a filmmaker, when you're on a long lens, the, the movement sensitivity is extremely. It's like being in the top of a building during an earthquake, right? The, yeah. the way is the longer the lens, the more you see movement. That's why it's difficult to move a camera when you're using a long lens. That was the challenge because I told Yurig, my cinematographer, you cannot. We're not going on anything less than a. 50 millimeter lens, no wide angle lenses, everything intimate. Uh, I prefer even 75 millimeter and up, meaning a long lens, meaning that things in the background go out of focus and and the person is the focus, right? Uh -huh. And so um, so whenever I'm doing that, so anyway, you're just like, I could feel him like starting to laugh because it is hilarious. And I'm on his ear. I'm literally on his ear because I'm right by him. Like I can see him. Um, I'm, I'm saying in his ear, don't laugh because I don't want the camera to shake, right? <laughs> I said, I need this take. This is my master, and it's perfect, so don't, you can't laugh. So that was a weird rule because usually, you know, you have to sort of say that because on a, on a com comedy, there were certain rule, things I came up with during a, making a comedy different than making a horror film, and that was uh -huh. one of them. Uh -huh. Horror film, I don't have to worry about people laughing. They're more horrified. <laughs> 
than anything else. But on a comedy, if you if it's working, it should be funny even on the set, and you mm-hmm. can see it's working. Mm-hmm. The diner scene is actually that. That's my my favorite joke. The when he squashes the bug on the um, yes, on the yes, window I, because I don't see it coming and it's, even I mean I've seen the film many times and every time I, I try to find out okay when does the bug come in and well of course I noticed at, at some point that somebody throws it in after a cut so that's why you don't see it but it's such a surprise that all of a sudden he, he's squashing it and coming so close to the camera there's no cut there was no cut in that It was thrown in. I, I went and bought these things. I bought. I went and bought the fly swatter and the bugs because mm-hmm. they're sticky, right? So you needed someone with a really good arm that knew how to get it into the to the shot off camera in the middle of the window. So there was no cut. That was all the master. He threw it in perfectly. Mm-hmm. At that point, at a certain point, I I, I give him the, I, I signal him and he throws it in. So if you watch it, there's no cut there. It's a, it's actually a one master. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in masters when it works like that. Uh, I'm, I don't like to be cutty, but I'd like to cover so that I can change the pace of the mm-hmm. scene. Um, especially with comedy, you want to be able to change the pace. Um, to, uh, so if you watch, my films move pretty fast because I've got the coverage to um, to to change the pacing. But at the same time, I believe very much in the John Huston way of filming, which is if you've got the actors and the performance is working, move the camera. Don't don't make a cut. If you watch like Preetzi's Honor or any of his films, he rarely cuts because he's working with tremendous actors who can deliver it all in a master. I mean, you have, like the Preetzi's Honor, there's a, a couple of scenes with uh, Bill Hickey and Jack Nicholson and and uh, John Randolph. Then he never it never cuts. Doesn't even cut. Mm. And These are all great actors, and but I, uh, but my background, the reason why I have such, if you want to talk about editing, it's my one of my favorite parts of the process, is because that's when you see your movie working and coming to life and creating the feeling. Is you can do it all in the cutting room if you have the coverage, and the person I learned that from, who taught me, my mentor was Bob Downey Sr. Uh, that that made crazy iconoclastic films of the of the, his era you know junior's dad and um he and a purist artist as far as he's the most pure artist filmmaker i've ever come across and extremely generous with information and he was he came into the editing room of my first film the being for no money he just said i'll come in and help you and i learned so much because he taught me that you have full freedom to take things out, to change the pace. And you have to be sort of like fearless, not to just throw scenes out that you spent a lot of time shooting. Mm-hmm. And he was so diplomatic. I find the really good artists are extremely respectful. Whenever I get someone that's disrespectful because I'm a woman or disrespectful because I, at the time I was young or now disrespectful, you know, um, I found that the real artists like uh, Bob Downey Sr., uh, Rutger Hauer, always so respectful of my vision and um, always never just t- telling me what they, oh, I think this is bad or, or you should do this. Even if they thought it, they were extremely respectful and they would say, mm-hmm. try, try, what do you think of this? What do you, I find that to be the case. You, you see that with the really good artists that have the, the, the purity of vision and are, and the right, are, are doing it for the right reasons. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? But anyway, he came into the cutting room of the being and, 
and uh, we did a version with where he was dubbing one of the voices and uh so funny and um wh- one of the scenes was i i don't remember what scene it was but it didn't make it in the movie and he said to me so diplomatically um jackie that's a great scene it just doesn't belong in this movie <laughs> Save it for another movie. <laughs> and it was a nice way of saying it didn't work, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was a nice way of doing it, a respectful way. And so it makes me laugh. I always think about that. And mm-hmm. then I had a very bad assistant editor at the time who was a surfer dude, guy that would come rolling in. And he goes, Jackie, you got to get rid of that guy. <laughs> he goes... I think you, he was so funny. He is such a funny man. And, and he goes, I think that you need to uh, get him on unemployment and call the unemployment office and tell them they should keep him on it permanently. <laughs> <laughs> Just to save other filmmakers. <laughs> so I got a. And I, I was lucky to have a very good mentor and teacher in the editing room that just taught me to just try crazy things, dub voices, change orders, and not be afraid to throw away things that you spent a lot of time shooting if you don't mm-hmm. work. Um, and a lot of people, young filmmakers, are afraid to do that. They're just mm-hmm. afraid. To, they can become attached. You see these cuts that are like hours and hours long mm-hmm. that just cut down get it down to make it work don't you know um they're afraid to cut it they're afraid to make those changes and you have to be um fearless in the cutting room really yeah that's i i usually advise filmmakers against cutting their own movies because you always know that the film's gonna be like 15 or 20 minutes too long and you know when you spend so much time on a scene maybe the writer is also the director. He spent so much time writing it. He spent so much time setting it up and getting performances out of everybody. And, you know, and like you say, or, or uh, Bob Downey Sr. said, uh, it just doesn't belong in the movie. Maybe it's just not meant to be in the movie. Yeah, and it's not a bad scene. It just doesn't belong in the movie. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and that's a white, nice way of saying it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed with your editing, um, it's it's very fast. You don't linger on the shots. You don't linger on the scenes. You you get in at the last possible moment and you get out of the scenes at the earliest possible moments, uh, especially in Night Patrol and Blood Diner. I would rather people want more than get sick of watching the scene. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, a a friend of mine, um, producer, casting director, said to me one time, and this is true also on scenes as well as actors. I I won't name the film, but we were in Cannes and I watched a film and there was... it was a debut of a big actor's directorial debut, and he put another actor in it. And they, everyone was predicting this would, actor would be huge, would be a big actor. So I, he he asked me afterwards the screening, he said, what did you think of so-and-so? And I said, well, I tell you, I got tired of looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know what he said to me? And this was like the, one of the biggest casting directors in Hollywood ever. He said to me, well, that's not the mark of a star. Um, because a star, you never get tired of looking at them. And that's interesting. So you don't want people to get tired of looking at your scene. And in fact, I just finished writing a new show that I would like to try to turn into a series. And when people read it, they said they always want to know what's going to happen next. They never, they're on the edge of their, it's a page turner. You want to know what's going to happen next. Um, I don't want to be watching a film in which I'm done. I don't really care about what happens next, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge in a in a world where people have seen everything, right? 
uh, people have seen, you know, and especially in the horror genre, they've seen everything. So to surprise that audience, which Blood Diner continues to do to this day, mm-hmm. pe- people were bringing friends that had never seen it, that were huge fans. Uh, they were coming in costume. It was almost like a Rocky Horror Show type of screening every time we would go. It would be sort of like the, the rock star version of screening a movie. Mm-hmm releasing movie, which I actually think one has to do at this point. And I don't think there are that many directors that can pull it off. Mm. Maybe um, John Waters, um, you know, um, Quentin, of course, because he's Mr. Show. He's a very showy guy. But literally when I went, it was like New York, 200 people lined up out the door for my autograph and Mm. wanted to get pictures and buy merch and talk to me. Um, or just say something. And my daughter was very impressed. Because I have a, a, a 19 at the time, she was like 16. She was kind of so weird to see all these people lining up, shaking, wanting to talk to you about your film. Because I, because clearly, she said your film really affected people. When I mm-hmm. when I run my diner, even when we ran it at the New Art, because we did the Chinese theater at the end of the tour. Then we were asked to play the New Art, which was very prestigious. And then after that, we were asked to play Quentin's Theater, the um, New Beverly Cinema, mm-hmm. um, which is Hollywood. They told me it sold out more. The, they sold out faster than any other movie they had online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, and it was a full house, and nobody wanted to leave. And they they said, "Would you please come down for a Q and A?" And I said, "Okay, let's do it um, after." the second film, they're running The Being and Blood Diner. I said, after Blood Diner. And they said, oh my God, you know, no one's gonna stay for that, that's gonna be midnight. <laughs> and I said, I said, believe me, I've been on tour with this film, nobody leaves. Mm-hmm. Everybody stays, even if it's three in the morning for the Q&A, because they all are j- jacked up. I don't know how to explain it, they're all amped up. The film amps people up, they, they mm-hmm. gets them, they laugh so hard. And they're so outraged by the, the shock value of it. Nobody wants to leave, and everybody wants to talk about it. So, um, so sure enough, we we did. Not only did they not want to leave the Beverly Cinema when it was over, they were hanging in the lobby. Ever, I mean, it was like it's because everybody is like, it's almost like when you finish a rock concert, mm-hmm. you don't want to leave and go home. You want to go do something and hang with your friends and and feel the vibe for a while that's what my films do you feel it you walk away from it i mean when i went on tour there were fans that had hardcore fans that was their favorite film of all times they have blood diner tattooed on their arm um you know uh told me it's literally bringing uh donut heads for me as a present you know um (laughs) and showing up in costume because it affected them, and mm-hmm. and, and the film, and they, and they bring friends that don't know anything about it just to watch them react to it, and those those friends are like want to talk to me because they've never seen anything like it before. Now the script I'm finishing, the 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 people are telling me they've never seen a film like this before. I mean, it's like so outrageous the characters I have. Um, okay. Yeah, so I will spill it a little bit with you, but I was going to hold off talking more about it until we're I'm writing I'm on the fifth I'm on the fifth episode right now writing Mm -hmm. it by the time the pandemic is over I should have eight episodes written and Mm -hmm. it it is unlike anything out there which is hard in a horror to horror fans Mm -hmm. um, but people that read it say they can't wait to see what's going to happen left next and it's not like anything they've ever seen Mm-hmm. I'm so tired, Christian, of the same films being made over and over and over again. Don't they trust any artist to make something new? Mm. I know and, what you mean. 
Yeah, it's like, come on. How many times can you remake this, a, a film that's already been made well? Mm-hmm. And it means that, that they're, they're not getting the creative people in there that have and trusting them. You know, that they can mm-hmm. do something different. Um, because everybody's scared, I guess. Everybody's they're scared just. Of, they're scared of losing their job, I guess. Yeah. And that's yeah. the that's becomes a sad thing when all the films are made by people afraid to lose their jobs. So instead, they'll do a remake because that feels safe. Because at least they can say to their boss, "Well, it worked, you know, before. Mm. You know, we thought it would work again. Well, maybe try to. They should put the directive to find something really fresh." Mm. Um, but you know, unfortunately, that's the state of the industry. That's why you will see. Three studios making Godzilla, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, um, you know, they're all doing the same thing. Well, they're doing it, so I, it must not be bad. So it's a, sort of like a cover your ass type of filmmaking. Um, so I'm making this. I, I will. I will go. Out, I will shoot it 2021 if this pandemic thing uh, lets uh-huh. up. Um, and um, and if I have to shoot it down and dirty, I'll shoot it down and dirty. But it is eight uh-huh. episodes of something you've never seen before. Uh-huh. And um, and I sort of am enjoying the pandemic because it gives me other than these inter- this interview because I've got six interview requests and you're the mm-hmm. only one I'm doing right now because I'm in the middle of writing, um, oh. yeah and and so I because I, because what happens it, it interrupts my writing when I do interviews, mm-hmm. um, uh, I I, t- I try to focus and do an interesting interview so it's like I put my it, it takes me out of my writing but. I finished my outline before we started, so I'm ruminating on it now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I dream most of the scenes, so I have to outline them and then dream them and then write them. And then mm-hmm. it comes very fast and uh, scene by scene, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it is something um, unique, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. that people are ready i know people are ready for it i hope that the stations are ready for it yeah absolutely i think people um are absolutely ready and they want to see good stuff and original stuff and um you know daring uh, films daring series um mm-hmm. i i think so i think um i think they're just not being given that now because and, and i'm hoping that with this pandemic they will hopefully by accident maybe stumble on it Mm-hmm. Uh, in, because of the need for more programming, because there's going to be a drought soon. I mean, everything mm-hmm. will have been played out and um, that's been made already. And mm-hmm. hopefully they will um, get this uh, idea. Maybe we should do something original. Mm-hmm. And, um, and with my track record, you would think that people would say, oh, my God, she's got a track record of movies pulled up 30 years and with a sellout crowd, you know, touring. You'd think that they would understand that. But there's a kind of a discrimination against not only and hasn't changed much between uh, against women filmmakers in general um, mm-hmm. be, being trusted, uh, no matter how. Um, and I even had somebody tell me, oh, we'd, I'd rather a producer tell me I'd rather hire someone with, that's never done anything before. I can get that made easier than someone that is um, got a, tra- a female track record because you know they want the next latest thing. Someone, uh-huh. I said, are you kidding? Um, you're, you're not looking for uh, someone that's actually like what? That's like telling Stephen King we want to find some writer. <laughs> 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 That that has never written anything over someone that already has a track record writing. But part of that is 
combination of first, it was because I was so young, because I was making these films in my 20s. It was like female, Asian American, and young. And I looked about 15 when I was directing these films. And then, um, but then, because I'm, you know, I have this is the Asian thing. But now I still look like I'm, you know, very young. But now it's like, oh my God, now you're female, you're Asian, and now you're older. We want to find somebody 20. But when I was 20, nobody wanted to work with me because I wasn't 40. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The line was they just didn't want to work with me. <laughs> they didn't really want. So I laugh about that a little bit, but not in a good way about how um, this discrimination is, you know, that things really haven't changed that much. The, the, apparently nobody is looking to work with. So I, I, so I get it done anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've never waited for someone to say, hey, we're looking for a really well-qualified female Asian-American director. That, that's just not even on the checklist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess producers always think that young talent is um you know they can influence young talent much more than an established filmmaker or something yeah. and I mean you are a filmmaker who very much knows you know what you're doing and you know what you want and that I guess scares a lot of people. Yeah, I guess but it scared them when I was young. It was, yeah. they have to stop being scared. <laughs> <laughs> Because the only way they're going to have a hit or a good yeah. film is to stop being scared and to be more fearless in their approach yeah. because otherwise it's just a copycat you know christian i don't make sequels of my stuff all my films of like night patrol was number one theatrically they wanted a sequel i said you know what i get that you make money on the sequel and i get you know but i said i would be more than happy to produce a sequel but i don't want to direct it i already directed mm -hmm. that movie and then they got upset no we want you to direct it and i said no well you know i same thing with blood diner um huge hit in japan Uh, Toho sent over a memo for like half a million dollars to make a sequel. And I just, I just made the movie. I mean, I don't really want, I wanted to make a biker movie at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that sounds more interesting to me, a biker chick movie than, uh, than Blood Diner again. So this is why I'm enjoying this um, series I'm writing, because I'm writing what I want. Mm -hmm. I know that there's nothing else like it. So probably it would take a, a visionary and a and a very brave producer slash company to come in on um, making it, but you know I know that this is the the uh, kind of film like that I would want to make that would last, mm -hmm. and that would make an impression and and change perception. You've got to remember when I made Blood Diner, there were no mass killings. You know, you look at that opening disclaimer, even though it's made in fun. It says, as we know that mass, uh, you know, uh, homicide exists, blah, blah, blah. There were no mass homicides. That was 30 years before its time. Mm. Now it's a daily occurrence that mass homicides, homicides exist. The fact that there are likable, normal guys that look like was, was aberrant, was horrible. They, they hated the fact that they were, you couldn't see that they were clearly bad guys. Well, we can't tell whether these people that kill people are bad guys or not. They look... Mm those boys next door that go to college you know yeah, they're usually nice people i mean that's the that's the one line you always hear in an interview well he was such a nice neighbor yeah. a little bit quiet I, but yeah he was so nice <laughs> yes exactly well so but when i did it it was considered it was so far ahead of its time that nobody got it what i'm doing right now 
I'm creating an urban legend that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I'm right. I just wrote her backstory, which is terrifying and yet funny. And, and certain the, the other characters are very funny, but her story is extremely scary. And I know that when people read it, they're going to say nothing like this exists. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? As, as if that's a critique to change it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, am I supposed to change it into something that exists? That something mm-hmm. that they can understand? I don't think so. Uh, that's not been my style <laughs> in the past. Um, I'm not sure. And I, this is another thing. You know, I find that the people that do want to give me comments to change that I'd never ask for seem to, you know, not know what they're talking about with no experience whatsoever. If I'm going to ask mm-hmm. somebody, I'm going to ask Bob Downey Sr., or I'm going to ask somebody like the head of distribution or somebody that is in the field that knows what they're talking about. I'm certainly mm-hmm. not going to take advice from, from you know, somebody that has almost no credits. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Or as a reader for some, yeah. I, I said, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I didn't ask for those comments. So please don't even try to give those to me. So now people are afraid to tell me if they like. <laughs> 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 but I tell them, look, I like the, discussing creative things. I don't like when someone doesn't know what they're talking about, haphazardly offers critique when you never asked for it. Um, yeah, I think also when you give feedback, it's always important to find out what the person is trying to do in the first place. I mean, that's kind of that, that's the basis for it. Uh, what is it that you're trying to do before I tell you what I think is, might be wrong with it? Right, right. Well, there, it, it, the problem is this: when I got finished Blood Diner, just so you understand, I got and and you know, if someone's paying me a fortune to make a show, I will I will listen and look at their critique. I do. I'm not an impossible person. Doesn't mean I'm doesn't mean I'm not I'm going to do it. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to I mean, part of the job is that, you know, you can write your so when I finished Blood Diner, uh was the next to the locked cut. It wasn't the fine cut yet, and the producer, one of the exact producers saw it and she gave me six pages of changes. Blood Diner, six pages. I said, I read them all very a single line, six pages. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. You should do that. So I read over all of the pages, and I and I and I called her up, and I said, you know, I'm not going to make any of those changes, <laughs> because <laughs> the only change I am after hearing, because what I want when I screen, and I do like screening the movie to see reaction before I lock the cut. Um, I said, what I screen a film for is not for someone to tell me what to do. It's for me to t- for them to tell me or for me to get a sense of how they feel. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not a matter of because they have no idea what needs to be cut, what needs to be changed. They're guessing. Oh, if you took this character and moved it there, if you did this, they're just guessing in the wind. You know, they don't know. And yet it's like it's like making a good meal and listening to everybody that tastes it tell you what you should add to it. By the time you finish, it's a disaster, you know. Either you have a very clear vision of what it is you're creating or or you don't. But what I do ask is how does it make you – did that make you laugh? Did that scare you? You know what I'm saying? I want to know if uh, the feelings, okay, mm-hmm. uh, that are going on. And from those feelings, I will make a, a decision on how to adjust it. Does that make any sense? It's like mm-hmm. someone writing a song and someone telling you, oh, you should change the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> to, um, I think it would be better if you, instead of using, you know, um, 
uh, hey Jude, maybe hey babe. That would reach more people. They would understand babe more than Jude. Nobody knows what Jude is. Mm. And maybe you should uh, change it, speed it up a little bit because it seems a little slow. I mean, how dare these people do this? Do you, do you mm. see what I'm saying? And, and for, as a woman filmmaker, I get this all the fucking time. Excuse my language. I always mm. get dummies, d- total dummies, because only a stupid person would actually <laughs> give unsolicited <laughs> advice, right? They tell me, oh, you should do this or you should do that. Or uh, say why you're uniquely qualified to direct this movie. I said, why do mm-hmm. I do that? What, 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 you really think that's going to work? Me explaining when I write in my synopsis why I am uniquely qualified to direct this film. I said, you know, <laughs> you, I said, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not changing a word, not a word. I said, but if you're able to articulate how you feel, I might, I'll listen to that and see if I think it's relevant or not mm-hmm. um, and, and make my changes accordingly. So, so after getting my six pages from the executive producer, I, I said, I listened to how she felt. She made all these comments that I should do this, do that. I mean, these are detailed changes she's giving me. And then I said, I'm not willing to do anything that you've, you've um, but I, I'm trying to get a sense of how you feel about the, the pacing. And I said, the only thing I'm willing to do, and it's not even in your notes, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip-flop two scenes. I was, so I moved one scene in front of the other. I didn't even uh-huh. cut them. I didn't even change any of the cut within. The, I said, but I feel like if that scene were moved up a little bit um, earlier, then the rest will flow. And I did that, and I never heard a, another comment. It was, it, it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Not even, it, like, it, it, it was like you just have to see what the flow is and the feel, and then you make the change. You cannot listen to cut by cut, whether it's the censor board telling you to cut everything that was offensive to them. I said, uh-huh. what's offensive to you guys at the censor board was the fact that these are good-looking guys. I'm, I'm supposed to make them ugly now and, and ghoulish, and then I'm supposed to cut the rest of it. I said, if you don't get the movie, you just don't get the movie. It's not a matter of changing all these things that you think will make it more appropriate for an audience, right? Uh-huh. So I, I didn't change a thing. We went out unrated. And when you got unrated at that time, it meant you cannot advertise in any newspapers. And um, and so we went out unrated. Uh, the film played San Francisco, opened there to sell out, in which I had to uh, win a date with the two lead characters, the Grindhouse, right? So it was sold <laughs> out. It was like packed. It was a lot of fun on Market Street. And uh, we had a big party at a club afterwards. But I had, uh, and they're good looking guys, so people were volunteering to win a date with them, right? So once they saw the film, (laughs) no one showed up for the date. (laughs) That was really hilarious. But then it moved to the Castro for a a one-month run at the art house because they got it in San Francisco. And then the film played like gangbusters in Germany and Italy and um, Japan, like huge uh, in, in the European magazine, they called me the next Roman Polanski. Um, but they just didn't get it in the U.S. I mean, until 30 years later, because mm. fans on the internet went crazy film and um, wanted to wanted a re-release of a Blu-ray. And then Lionsgate 
made a asked me to come in and remaster from the negative and do a commentary. I did a, the commentary, um, and then I said under one condition that I go on tour with the film and take the remastered DCP out to theaters where it sh- is the way it should be seen, and um, and I'll market your Blu-ray for you. But I want I want a surprisingly successful. Uh, to them, not to me, because I knew I had huge fans, because all I did was align, never advertised, aligned with all of the horror organizations in every town, and which it's on the top 10 favorite film list. So um, they got it out to all their fans. Um, we sold out um, Brooklyn, the Alamo Draft House, Bianchers, Vancouver, anyway, all, all the cities I'd mentioned before. Um, it was a great way to see the country because... Um, I took my daughter with me, and she was. Uh, it was like a kind of a new, interesting way to release a movie. And you can again, you can only do that if you have a named filmmaker um, that audiences want to meet and revere, like like their work. Um, so my body of work holds up, which was a big compliment to me because most people can't even remember what they saw last week, uh. yet alone you know decades ago. And it's fresh, as fresh on the big screen with an audience now as it was when I made it, if not fresher, I mean, and, uh, and relevant. So I'm happy about that. I mean, and that's what, that's the kind of work I like to make. I don't want to make just work, just to work. Okay. And I know that uh, people, you know, I see a lot of people, oh, I just want to make a movie. I've already made four films. Um, unless it's something really challenging, like the series that I'm working on now, which will start as a film and then, and then become a series only because I love the characters. The characters are so good. You want to know what happens to them. Um, but, uh, you know, and again, it's the new frontier. I, I like that idea um, of this longer format. Um, and, 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 it, and it becomes the new delivery system now for making, uh, uh-huh. making films. You know, I, I was lucky enough to have worked in all of the delivery systems, starting with theaters, with all my films, and then moving to video. And uh, that became the big market. And now, then I did the first internet TV show with uh, the, uh, called Karaoke Nights. Ten, uh-huh. We shot over 10 episodes of an uh, original series for the internet, even before there was bandwidth enough to watch them. <laughs> and when I did that, it was because I thought it was interesting and a challenge to do a series on the internet to reach more people. Uh, the producers I talked to in Hollywood were like, are you crazy? And this is only 20 years ago. You've got to remember. Uh-huh. Um, are you absolutely crazy? It was 18 years ago, actually, 19 years ago. No one is going to watch video on their computers. No one. You're, you're out of your mind. And that, they were, like, thinking I was insane to do a series for the Internet. And uh, yet, here we are. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> And now, it's the way to go now. It's the way to go. It's the way, you know, a lot of people are, are it's being delivered. That's the way a lot of media. So now, to me, the next frontier is this format to do like a series on Netflix or HBO that takes you through a saga of the characters and Jackie Kong style. I mean, my characters are really out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um We'll see. You know, that's what I'm working on. But that excites me. And I only can work on things that excite me. And So in relation to what you said about the, the, the blood diner screenings, just one thing that I noticed is that, which also, I guess, ties in with the very first question that you like to, you know, shock people. 
I think that audience involvement is, is something that is very important in your films. Um, I, I, I notice also when, when I watch Night Patrol that you have this segment where you actually invite people to yell at the screen um, where you're saying, well, if you know the answer, uh, sh uh, say it out loud. So um, is that something that you, that you um, sort of think about a lot when you, when you write something or when you shoot something? Um, how it involves the audience? Absolutely. I think that the audience, um, I try to make them an active participant. And I then try to manipulate the, the, the um, dialogue. So to give you an example, at the end I, I did that um, answer if you think you know it. Just to get them going, to get them involved. But earlier in the film, if you look at the, when I ran that film, we went out theatrically for New World, with, um, it became the number one hit for them, went out, was number one theatrically everywhere, even in New York. We started with 90 theaters in New York City, and the second week went up to 134 theaters, which is unheard of in, a, mm -hmm. in the films. Usually it drops 30%, even a studio movie. So this was a hit for them. They've never had anything like that. And so they were getting calls to book because their bookers watch this, this number. And in New York, get box office in New York, you can get it anywhere. That's the, that's the code. If you can make a hit in New York City, same thing with plays. You know that that's a hit anywhere. So we, were, we, we outgrossed Woody Allen's movie. We were number one everywhere and uh, full houses. So when you run it, we did the same in Chicago when I went into a grindhouse, huge. It was downtown, south side. I went in to watch the film with a full audience. And the audience is also very vocal in these big houses anyway. So they're like, you know, and they hated every joke. From the cockfight to the sperm bank scene to the, everything. And they're going, oh, boo. And they're making all this racket. Bad joke, bad joke, right? So, you know, if you watch, I, I have this thing that I do that I notice when you want to hook an audience and I notice it when I watch a film I watch a film and I and I'll say at a particular moment I'm hooked got me I want to know what's going to happen next so I'm very very conscious of that when I make my films and I know that with Night Patrol we are doing joke a joke a joke a joke and I wanted to hook that audience and and, and comedy audiences and horror audiences super jaded they know everything. They've seen everything. If they can see your joke coming, they'll boo you. You, you, they'll, you'll lose them very fast. So I didn't want to. I want. I need to hook that audience with Night Patrol. So at one point, I do all these jokes, and about ten minutes into the film, he's talking to his psychiatrist, maybe fifteen minutes in, mm -hmm. and he's saying, you know, he does another bad joke. Well, this played like crazy in the in the theater. So the audience yells boo, and they're all booing the joke. I think you'll have your cake, cake and Edith too. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, so that actor, Jack Riley, turns to the camera, breaks that camera, and he says, ah, yourself. Mm. At that moment, the entire audience goes crazy because I caught him. I got him. You know <laughs> and then from that moment on, they love the film. And they never could predict another joke because they mm -hmm. were afraid at that point then to be called <laughs> <laughs> I broke the third wall and went right back to the audience and said, ah, yourself. And they went crazy. The audiences loved it. That was the, always the pivotal point in every live screening, mm -hmm. Night Patrol. Even if mm -hmm. they did the movie the first you know, beginning and could call every joke. But when that happened, I, I had them eating out of the palm of my hand as far as 
fall, just flowing with the story and going with the jokes because I got, mm-hmm. fell on the floor mm-hmm. laughing on that. Yeah, it's a great moment. It's a it's a Groucho Marx moment, basically. It's it's in one of the early Marx Brothers movies where, where Groucho turns to the camera and says, "Well, not every joke can be good. You got to expect that every once in a while." Well, like a cigar, he because he's a vaudevillian and he understood how to play that audience. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are afraid to play the audience. Um, they're afraid to, to 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 talk to the audience. I think that they're just thinking that they're just running images. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, running beautiful images, the audience will just watch passively. I like to involve the audience, whether that's shocking them or talking directly off to them, but never always for a reason. You know, that created a, a laugh, and it created an organic laugh that mm-hmm. came from from inside that I didn't manipulate. Do you see what I'm saying? I gotcha, gotcha. Okay, like you said, the Groucho Marx with the cigar. Like I, I'm in on the joke too. Yeah, unfortunately, I've never seen your films with an audience. Um, I mean, I, I did watch Blood Diner with an audience, uh, with a self-created audience, because I used to invite people to my house and show them Blood Diner, <laughs> uh, which yeah. was always fun. Right, it gets a good reaction. Uh, you should, you can only imagine in a theater full of people. Yeah, yeah, I would love to it, see that. It's, it was so much fun going on tour. Um, and that was fun. To, that was exciting to me. That was the only reason I did the Blu-ray um, commentary. It was to say, okay, let's take it on tour. And it was almost like a new way of showing a movie where you have a director that has a, a voice and a vision, a particular voice and vision, present the film, the film delivers, and then the audience gets it's like a rock thing, star mm-hmm. uh, tour, where they get to meet and talk to the director and find out how did you even come up with that stuff. <laughs> how did that happen? Because they were truly affected by it. Because I find that most Q and A's, the the New Beverly was right. Most people just leave right after the movie, uh, especially at, even earlier. The movie's over. It didn't really move them. They really don't want to talk to the director if it didn't. So they just leave, and um, that's their experience. People don't stay. They just, they told me at midnight um, for a Q and A. I said they will. I just been on tour. Nobody leaves. <laughs> And it's not, yeah, because it's not because I'm locking them in. <laughs> <laughs> you see that at a lot of film festivals, that the director is there and he has a Q&A session and a lot of people walk out after the movie. Oh, yeah. And you get the feeling that some of them just stay because they're being polite and not okay. because, you know, they are so interested. Um, so, yeah. Well, when you go into my Flickr, uh, I put up the gallery of the tour recently while in the pandemic, just actually last week. Go into um, New Beverly Cinema and um, Seattle. You'll see the audience. This is after the film during the Q&A. No one leaves. No mm-hmm. one. It's almost stunning to me. I went. They invited me before the lockdown in February to speak at the Chapman University um, Film School, which is a big university here in uh, Southern California. And it was the first ever horror film class. And they ran the film. And and these are young 20-year-olds, and they were stunned by it. I mean, stunned, mm-hmm. shocked, and loved it. And um, and they said, he goes, well, you can leave or you can stay for the Q&A. The entire class, nobody left. Everyone had questions. How did you arrive at this film? Because clearly, as you know, as a, as a filmmaker, the writing is so important and the vision is so important. And to come up with that is almost a kind of a magical thing. Most people can't find a good script, or they don't know how to identify how to uh, identify one or write one or create, and, and then to, to to take the next level as a 
as a um, vision, as a as a in a visual sense, and as an execution of the of the material. If you look at Blood Diner, the script, and you look at my execution, they have nothing to do with each other, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when we were filming it, even the one producer that was a, that helped re- rewrite the script, which was a complete knockoff of uh, Blood Feast. It was like scene by scene, a total ripoff. I'd never seen Blood Feast, and I didn't want to see Blood Feast because I wanted to do my version. And when they saw what I was doing, when this one producer saw it, a Maslin, he said, you're ruining the movie. You're ruining it. He told me, I, if I would have shot it the way you wanted me to shoot it, I said, this movie would disappear into obscurity uh, for sure. I said, I, I'm doing my version of it. And he goes, well, you're making it funny. And too, and I said, I said, that's my version of it. So... You know, um, but then now he's like trying to, you know, claim that he knew it all the time. But I have to tell you, when I'm making, when I was making those films and I was in my 20s, I was very much alone in my process because everybody didn't get it, even the people, a lot of people working on it. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh Like, I didn't get a lot of support, let's put it that way. With uh, Night Patrol, same sort of thing happened. I pushed them to write the ending, and I said, I'm shooting the film in April. You've got till June to finish the ending, writing the ending, because we're shooting the mm-hmm. film, and I need to get to the ending by June. So the, the Murray, the, the lead actor, has a nervous breakdown and runs off to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> the filming, and um, and I won't go into the reasons why, because they're very, you know, be very insulting and personal for him, but there was an issue that he had, and I said, I said, I don't care what the issue is. We've got two more weeks of filming, and we haven't. You, you're supposed to write the ending. You haven't written the ending, and I had to go to fly to Hawaii. I, you got to remember, I'm only 26 years old. I got to go get this guy who's older than I am. They're all he looked, took off with a bunch of his friends, and I drag him back, and I say, "Look, I've got all these people working on this film. You've got to finish the film." So I ended up writing the ending. That whole good, the bad, the ugly ending was me uh-huh. because there was no ending. So I had to do a spoof on the good, the bad, and the ugly to have that confrontation. And then, um, but I was alone because after I dragged him back to finish it, he was pissed off, you know. He wasn't a happy camper. But I, me as a director, I said, I've got a whole crew that's working on this movie deferred and actors. And I said, "Um, we need to finish it. And so I was stuck alone editing that movie alone all summer long by myself with not a lot of allies, quite honestly. because everybody at that point was like, Hollywood's a weird place. At that point, everyone was like distancing, distancing themselves in case it was a bomb. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was like, okay, well, you know, because I, you know, I was so young and I pulled together a crew, but I didn't look like what you would imagine a director would look like uh. to deliver this film. You have to imagine when they, when I went to sell it to New World, I was in the waiting room alone. Mostly everyone had their entourage or their lawyers or, and, and I, they came out and they looked at me and they just, they, they said, where's the rest of your group? You know, <laughs> she can't be the one that we're talking to. Do you see what I'm saying? So it was a kind of a weird visual disconnect. It was like when I went to Italy, um, Night Patrol was a huge hit in Italy for the distributor and I met the guys that, uh, I talked to the. I, I went to Italy to the distributor's office to meet the guys that were running the distribution office, and they were stunned. They thought I was a. They visually couldn't imagine. Where's Jackie? I said, I'm Jack. <laughs> 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 and same thing happened at New World. It was like, 
And then I realized now, many years later, because I was so fearless in directing this and just getting it done, not believing anyone telling me that I couldn't do it. Do you see what I'm saying? Even though Uh I I had to fight for everything, I just believed that I, I could do it. I knew I could do it. But I realized now, many years later, when I did the show, and you'll see me talk about it on the cult show a little bit, I realized that there was a visual disconnect uh-huh. Uh, when I, um, for example, when they dubbed it in Italian, they, I put the outtakes of, of Night Patrol there, and they dubbed me with a male voice. So it was Basta Ragazzi. They all thought they all thought I was a guy, a man, and, a, <laughs> and a, apparently a, a, a big guy. <laughs> I have a really deep voice, Basta Ragazzi. Uh, you know, and I'm going, oh my god. And so I, when I went to meet them, they were it was a visual disconnect. They couldn't imagine mm. that that they'd already dubbed me as a man, and then I'm a petite female, young <laughs> at the time. And I said, you know, um, it doesn't matter how young or old you are; they still can't imagine. It just doesn't fit in the almost like saying a color that you've never seen before. This is fuchsia, but you've never seen mm. fuchsia before. So, <laughs> so I was telling the guys over at Cult Show. Um, that really I felt, now I understand, now it's like me walking in with my dog and saying, the dog directed the movie. (laughs) 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 You know, it's because they couldn't fathom, you know, a a woman could direct such a ballsy, um, shocking film. And... Mm. And so, but I didn't realize that at the time, what was wrong with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> they would just rather dub me as a guy, put me, but it's a, such a subconscious thing that one has to overcome in this world, mm. you know? Mm. And so, but I, but I realized that that was, you can imagine if you walked in and said that, that that's really how out of, out of the ordinary, out of the usual I was. And still mm. remain being, because wait till you read my new one. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. I already know from my past that people are going to be shocked and they're not going to know what to make of it because there's never, literally, the last my assistant just, you know, that one of the producers just wrote in saying there's nothing else like it, nothing. Mm. Yet you can't put it down and you want to know what's going to happen next. Mm. To me, this is the ultimate compliment. <laughs> Thank you.